Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we're committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practice. I'm Rose from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I'm your host. Just to let you all know, the views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position of policy of their organisation. So we'll start with introductions and hear from the panellists themselves before we move on to our participants' questions. So with that, Gernick, please, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi, everyone. My name's Gernick Singh-Bassange. I'm a GP and I'm also the LLR, which is Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland. ICB Clinical Lead for Home First and Urgent and Emergency Care. I'm also a digital healthcare advisor. What's on? Anything that you wanted to add that you're passionate about? Yeah, I've been massively passionate in safe clinical digital transformation and also trying to make sure that digital transformation and innovation doesn't increase health inequalities or at least minimise the increase in health inequalities where possible. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, Mike, you're up next, if possible. Thank you, uh, Rose. My name's Mike Emery. Um, I'm the Director of Digital Data and Technology from Herefordshire and Worcestershire's ICB, that's the Integrated Care Board, but I lead our wider Integrated Care Systems Digital and Data Programme. That's pulling together a variety of programmes around shared care record, uh, improving infrastructure, levelling up digital maturity, but importantly, looking at opportunities around innovation using tools like AI, um, to better uh, support diagnosis um, where possible to uh, respond to workforce issues. Um, similar to Gurnat, though, that I, I'm very keen to see how technology can actually reduce health inequalities. Um, and there's hu huge potential there, I think, particularly in rural areas where access to lots of health services um, sometimes is limited due to uh, what's available in the area. So lots of potential there as well. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and lastly, Carla. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm Carla Richards. I'm the Innovation Project Manager at the Health Innovation Network in South London. And um, what I do in my role, I spend a lot of time talking to innovators and companies that are developing um, new technology for the NHS, um, hearing what they're working on, kind of what point they're at, um, and giving advice and signposting where we can about things like regulatory requirements, um, the kind of evidence they need, and um, then hopefully um, introducing them into our clinicians, getting good clinical evaluations, and seeing where we can get the best products into the NHS. Um, I, th I think it's a really exciting role. I get to see a lot of stuff, a lot of really cool stuff, to be honest, in lots of areas, because I'm not um, limited to one clinical department or one clinical area, I get a really good overview of some of the new and exciting things that are coming up. And so I really like making those connections and introducing the innovators and the, and the products into the NHS um, where I get a chance. Excellent. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much to all three of you for joining me today. Um, I'll come back to you first, Carla, to uh, go over your question. So you've kindly provided this one, which is how can we ensure the, that the adoption of new technology does not increase health inequalities? Carla, please, can you uh, start us off with your thoughts behind this one? Yeah, it's, I'm glad that uh, my question's first after um, hearing the, the two introductions that came before me. It sounds like we're all really interested in health inequalities and um, and, and how, how that relates to new technology that's coming up. Um, 
we've talked to a lot of digital companies that are developing um, patient-facing apps. And um, I'm, I'm not sure always that um, all these companies think about digital inequalities. Um, some of the some of the problems that we might come up with is is the app suitable for use? Um, I talked to a lot of companies and asked them kind of what maybe what language level their apps are aimed at, um, what what educational level they see their their users having, things like that. Are they available in different languages? Um, if it's for example health and well being solution, do they take into account uh, cultural differences? Maybe um, the types of food people like to eat, or or just different differences in in the, in the the cultures that they're they're, they're approaching, um, a lot of companies haven't thought about things like that. Some of them have. We t we talk to them about doing things like um, equality impact assessments. Um, these also need to be done, I think, on the NHS side. Um, the the commissioners, the service managers, the people who are looking at purchasing these products, have they thought about that? Have they thought about things um, like digital poverty? Are, are there um, access to um, to Wi-Fi? Do the solutions run offline ever? Um, do you know, if someone doesn't have uh, Wi-Fi in their house, will the solution that they've been asked to use work? So I think there's a whole lot of things that need to be looked at. Um, you know, what if someone has an older phone? Do you need the latest iPhone model for, for your product to work? So that's just thinking about patient-facing apps. Um, I, I, a lot of things are used in solutions, for example, in GP practices. Maybe maybe Gurnak, I don't know, maybe you have a solution that um, automatically recalls patients for screening or appointment booking. And is there a backup solution for patients that don't have even have a mobile phone or who don't um, have access to the internet? So I think there's just lots of different things to think about. And I think it's actually a topic that we could go on for probably an entire hour about. But I'd be interested to hear, I, I can see um, Gernak um, shaking his head. Uh, maybe maybe he's got something to add. Yeah, perfect. We'll go straight to you if that's okay. Yeah, thank you. I, I was perhaps nodding more in agreement um, of, of what you were saying. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's on us as a system uh, and and by that i mean those people who are supporting the innovators the clinicians who are using the innovations um and the, the innovators and and the companies themselves to really make sure that the health inequality piece and the patient piece is at the center of any innovation so in, in terms of how we can ensure that you know we're not increasing health inequalities that's the first thing that we have to question here. What we sometimes see is we sometimes see technologies being repurposed. So they might have been, you know, worked incredibly well in one situation, um, you know, and, and then there's a thought that that could perhaps also be used in the clinical world. So for example, time management solutions or um, other solutions, like you said, recall systems. Um, but those typically haven't always been focused on a patient. They, they might have been focused on either a customer or an employee, for example. So health inequalities sometimes do not even come into the equation. And so I've spoken to companies where actually they've not even considered health inequalities at all. So I think the first thing we have to do is we have to encourage getting that patient voice or that individual voice at the table. And when we're creating these types of solutions or we're looking to implement them, we have to understand what that user journey will look like and where the pinch points will be. And I think in doing that, we can start to take the first step towards reducing health inequality. And, and hopefully Mike has got something even more valuable to add, add to that. Um, so over to Mike, I think. All right. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. I, I, I suppose um, my, a couple of reflections. I, you know, there's, there's the terrible word that we often badly around around co-production and developing uh, applications and technology with your, your user groups. 
Um, and I think that's absolutely key. Where we've had success in Hereford and Worcester around a couple of applications is where we've really used user groups to help develop an application. So we've, um, one of our mental health care trust has worked with young people to develop an app called Bestie, which is around um, mental health in, in younger, younger, younger people and children. They work through what they would, and, and they, they came up with things like, you know, actually, uh, if, if we have an avatar in our mental health app, we're more comfortable talking to a mental health professional. But the mental health professional hadn't even thought about that. And then they're comfortable having an avatar. And then over time, then that changes. And, and, and then they might be happy to have a face to, uh, a video consultation. And before we know it, then they're happy to come in and have a face-to-face -face consultation, which, which when they started, they were very nervous in anything around meeting a professional. Um, and we're doing a similar thing around uh, a, an application to support those with learning disabilities um, to manage their long-term conditions. And again, how can we go out? And you talked about the level of language and, and the type of uh, if you know, functionality that will be intuitive to those that perhaps struggle with those kinds of applications. You know, when we've seen the first uh, iterations, they're very much going, well, yeah, you just uh, simpler buttons with less pictures and all sorts. Doesn't work for those kind of, those kind of people. So I, I think that interaction involvement of those users is absolutely key and it's easy to be glib about it but it makes a huge difference the other thing that i think that we often forget when we talk about health inequalities and it's really applicable it's probably the same in leicester but it's actually in some disadvantaged communities come back to the internet and the connectivity issue so i i i have had a big debate and and sonia patel and people like that know this that i feel some of the digital maturity standards what good looks like and so forth, doesn't consider enough connectivity as an issue, which is really important for rural areas. So we talk a lot about remote care, we talk a lot about applications, but if you don't have the Wi-Fi, the connectivity, or you can't afford Wi-Fi or the internet, we fall at the first hurdle. So I always tell this very last quick story. In the middle of COVID, um, uh, I talked about the fact that we had some care homes that couldn't use remote technology because they didn't have good connectivity. So NHSE told me that uh, uh, there was a poor connectivity pilot for care homes. I went, okay, great, we'll be on that. So we nominated two care homes. Two weeks later, they came back to me and went, well, they can't be part of the poor connectivity pilot because they haven't got any connectivity. And I, and I went, uh, well, that was the point of nominating them. And I said, well, where did you do the initial trials? London, they went. And I think it's that understanding of, under, you know, some communities we haven't even got past go yet around some of those basics and we need to recognize that when we're looking at new technology and applications that's great thanks mike uh Gernak, you'd like to add to that go ahead yeah i think i think that's an uh, such an incredible point there around the the digital exclusion part of the, of the criteria uh, and and you know the standards not being um apps explicit enough in terms of digital exclusion in itself and digital maturity but I'd just like to come to a point of maybe try and counterbalance this a little bit, mm. because we do have to accept that where we are as a system and, and for many technologies, we're not, you know, we've not built the perfect, we're not at the, the, the level of maturity that we need to be at. Let's be quite honest here. So we do have to look at it from a system perspective in terms of, you know, are we still able to unlock some 
um, benefit by even using solutions which might be substandard. So, for example, and I think this is where the actual implementation part is really, really important. If we can optimize patient journeys and optimize our clinicians and their time, potentially we can still free up time for those individuals who are digitally excluded for whichever reason, um, to perhaps go back to the standard type of care, i.e., you know, if we can move more patients to digital, potentially we might free up more time for face-to-face appointments from a GP practice perspective. Now, the, the challenge is that remains to be seen. And, and actually, I think what we see in reality is that whenever we do introduce something digitally, it doesn't always free up the resource in the way that we've anticipated. It actually takes up more resource. So I did want to counterbalance that because I've heard that narrative quite a few times. I think if it's done well, and there are examples of it being done well, then it can succeed. But the, the trick here is to make sure that the processes that come before the technology are as refined as they possibly can be, but still accept that there's a risk that actually we might not end up freeing any clinical time or improving that patient journey uh, enough to counterbalance it. Oh, fantastic response there. And Carla, you're wanting to add again, more than happy for you to jump in. Yeah, um, just kind of on that point, um, in, in London, across the whole of London, we've been running um, in conjunction with the London Digital First team. We've got a series of pilots running this year um, looking at automation in GP practices. And it's exactly that. It's about freeing up clinician and even admin staff time to focus on on the patients more. So there's pilots running um, around automated, automatic, um, automated recall. Um, there's things like, you know, um, blood tests that are coming in, um, bots that will sort out the normal tests so that the staff can focus on the ones that have come back with different, you know, with results that need to be looked at. And so actually there is that kind of flip side that by freeing up clinician time and admin staff time with some of this technology, it does release them to deal directly with, with patients. And um, this, the second thing I wanted to say is um, kind of a flip to the to the um, health inequalities is that I talk to a lot of people that say, oh, well, um, looking at older populations, oh, well, you know, we can't we can't make an app for those old people because, you know, they won't know how to do it. They won't know how to go on the Internet. They won't know how to use their phones. And I, I think that there's a kind of a, don't know if it's a reverse to digital exclusion, but there's this this sometimes I think some of the population gets excluded from the outset before the digital solution is even selected because there's this assumption that certain parts of the population won't know how to use their phone. My my parents have iPhones, you know, they, they keep them turned off most of the time, but when they're on, they know how to use them. You know, my mom has got her tablet. Plenty of people in their 70s and 80s and, and even older are completely capable of using digital technology, but I think sometimes we exclude them from the from the get-go just with this assumption that they won't know how to do it. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as a twist on the on the idea. Yeah, that's great. Oh, sorry, love, John, Mike. Yeah, yeah, no, I wanted to build on that. I, I think, you know, we should also see the potential for technology to reduce health inequalities. And that, you know, and, that, and I think we were sort of getting there. So, um, so two things, you know, it's worth noting that there are some vulnerable groups that actually may, due to technology, for the first time ever, we can connect better with and help their health. So actually often I, I've heard some stats, you know, 70, 80% of homeless people have a mobile phone. So for the first time ever, you know, you can potentially connect with them and provide them health services digitally. So we must see that as an opportunity. And actually many people in rural areas might be able to do, for example, have their specialist consultation appointment without having to travel from Hereford all the way up to Birmingham, which is a two hour trip for the follow-up appointment. 
Um, and and you look internationally in places like India, Scandinavia, Canada, and that's how they operate. And it allows what I call the decentralization of healthcare due to technology to to places beyond those big urban centers. So I think we should see technology as potentially a solution to health inequalities as well. Um, uh, but we need to be mindful. It's it's going in with our eyes open, isn't it, to the risks, and that and that's what's important. Absolutely, Bob. Um, everyone's enjoying this question. Uh, Gerdak, you want to add again? Please go ahead. No, I, I think I, I think I'll just close it off because Mike, um, like literally just stole my point there. So thanks, Mike. Oh. Um, but but <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it builds into how we can we can and and that's the, perhaps the reason why I post that counterbalance is to try and segue into mm. the how we can use all to to improve um, health inequalities. But I think again, coming back to Carla's point, I think the assumption is really dangerous. And again, coming coming right back to the beginning of this discussion, it's about making sure that our patient voice is there and not not assuming, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so I think we we need to always have that patient voice as all citizen voice there at the table. And completely agree with Mike. I think there is um, lots of potential there. We need to go into it that um, you know when we look at change, we need to also look at some of the benefits that we can accrue. Uh, by by integrating and doing things uh, innovatively. Bob. I think that goes on to our, our next talking point quite nicely. Um, Gernak, you've, ha- you've provided the question, how important is the shiny toy technology when it comes to digital transformation? So please go ahead and start us off. Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm being a little bit cheeky there by calling it the shiny toy because not all innovations are toys, but, you know, they, they often are technology-focused. And um, and I, I get asked this question a lot, and, and that's why I, I wanted to perhaps bring it up. And I often get asked it in very different ways. But for me, what I've seen over the past few years is that there are really two pillars when it comes to creating or change, especially within healthcare, within digital transformation. Although this analogy could probably be used for most things. Um, and so the processes in my mind, or the pillars in my mind, the first would be the processes, the methodology, the the pre-A and post-B. So, you know, if I, if we use the, the shiny tool as the A to B, it's everything that comes before the A and everything that goes after the B. They're the processes, effectively. Then the other pillar is the technology itself, the shiny toy. And in between those pillars, we need to make sure that the patient is sitting there well secured. Both of those pillars need to be strong. But what, in my opinion, what we need to do is we need to really, really focus on building a very strong methodology base first. So making sure that the patient is, you know, the patient journey is taken into consideration, understanding that patient voice, what the patient is looking for. And then we should use the technology to make that become a, a reality, make sure that's the enabler. Sometimes what we tend to see is we tend to see the technology first approach. So a technology comes along into a system it's all shiny. It's got lots of bells and whistles. It, you know, it can do everything that it, it, the technology thinks might be needed. But when we bring the patient into the perspective picture, or we bring the clinicians into the picture, what we end up finding is that we're trying to push a round peg for a square hole, because the technology can't deliver on the processes that we want to do. And then what we need to do is we then need to change our processes to suit the technology. And that's where we get stuck. So in my mind, the shiny toy is important, but it's not as important as the methodologies and the processes that we need to ensure effective digital transformation. 
and I saw uh, Mike wanted to jump in there, so I'll I'll pass over to Mike. Yeah, no, no, I I, I fully support that. Though I'm going to just a couple of examples why I also think though the shiny toy can also help inspire and disrupt different thinking. So I've used the shiny toy or the technology one to excite a chief executive because chief executives get very excited about shiny toys and my chief executive would accept that. And, and But that can be very useful in when you're trying to get a message across around the importance of digital technology. So it's, I use it. And also the reason we, I bring in shiny tools sometimes is to try and get people to think differently. So an example being, um, we show, we've got a, a small innovation hub and we, we've just brought some clinicians to see some technology around VR, AR, uh, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality. And they were all sort of initially they were going, well, yeah, these are shiny tools. You're doing your usual, Mike. You'll say, look at all these suites in the shop, but they're of no use to anybody. Four weeks later, one of the clinicians went, I want to borrow one of those virtual reality headsets. I've got a child that's got, um, is due a kind of, is, is in an oncology department, is very anxious. We can't get them to take, uh, you know, um, you know, the, the injections they want to do, they're needle phobic. So he took those headsets, put them on some of these children, and he said he would never have thought it if he hadn't seen those shiny toys. And that, that child now is receiving the treatment because he saw the shiny toy. Now, he said I wouldn't, he, it had never occurred to him that kind of experience. So I think the processes are really important, but you can use a shiny toy to try and excite people and sometimes disrupt thinking to try and do things in a different way. So, it, I, you know, I think we ignore shiny, shiny toys at our peril. It's just, just trying to think. Um, I have to say, usually I, I tell everybody we must follow a due process in all sorts, but, you know, we need occasionally that pebble in the pond. Okay. I'll, I'll come straight to you if that's okay. No. Yeah, um, I, I'm just thinking. I think I think part of the thing is, like you said, Mike, you you have a a, a room where people can come in and play with you things know. and see what's there. I think a lot of it is actually familiarization and training. So um, we at the Health Innovation Network, we we do lots of grant programs, and um, we funded some. Um, we funded a project a few years ago at um, Oxley's where they did a simulation lab. Um, around using prescribing um, digital solutions for young people for mental health. And um, they did this simulation lab and it was all filmed. It was really interesting to see people act out the scenarios where they would talk to patients and be talking to young people and their parents. And before the simulation lab, they may not have ever wanted to talk to someone. It's too complicated. You know, it's they're not going to understand. But by pro providing that training and that practice in, in this in this instance, it was a practice in talking to parents about an app that the that there's that their young people could use but putting them in a scenario where they could actually try it out in a safe space and see how it worked and see how they'd have those conversations then the, the clinicians that participated got really enthusiastic about it because they started to see the potential of the product they had in front of them so i think like you said about that virtuality headset it's that thing where if they have the the chance to try it out use it in a scenario and recognize how it's useful then the thinking gets changed and you start to see how it can fit into pathways and maybe small changes need, need to be made not not revolutionary changes. I mean, obviously some tech changes everything, but it, it is that bit about people getting excited about it and, and starting to realize how they can use it. I think it's really important. Grand, Gernak, I'll come to you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Mike uh, and Zola has hit on an absolutely fantastic point there and bringing it back to the kind of the analogy around the pillar, 
the pillars, the patient in the middle. This all needs to be wrapped around by significant confidence and communications. Yeah. So um, if if you look at something and, and you know you look at a house opposite and you think, oh wow, that looks really really nice and shiny, absolutely, it's going to make you start to think about the arc of the possible. And and unfortunately, as clinicians, we often don't know what we don't know. And and you know if we if we're not looking at something and it's perhaps not you know really clearly shown as as something that could be reparceled or repackaged as something which might benefit our patients we might not have the bandwidth to try and even think about that that as a as a solution so i think you know mike's approach of, of bringing in lots of toys and saying look here is something that could be used in healthcare now now go away and have a have a think about it i think it's a fantastic approach um but again, then it, it kind of comes back to that patient journey and, you know, that the clinician thought about it from a patient perspective and then thought about how it could be used clinically and then applied it. So I think, again, it's that whole wraparound piece. And then, of course, they had the confidence then go out and use it. So, yeah, absolutely fantastic approach. And, and it, it just goes to show why, you know, the shiny toy is, is, is also an equal part of that journey. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, there's a few things I've learned in in all of this and particularly during covid is the importance of a multidisciplinary team to be able to think through so you know i can bring some of the the you know say look look at this technology but the clinicians say to me you're you're mad mike that'll never work um you, but you're also bringing the the patient's view as well and i think it it is where i see it goes wrong is when we work in silos and actually covid brought people together because we're all responding to what the problem was what is the problem? We're all stretched. We all got to work virtually. So we knew what the problem statement was. And then we were trying to find solutions to it. And I think sometimes it's about understanding some of the challenges and problems in the system, which the clinicians go, these are some of the challenges and problems. We go, well, there might be some shiny toys that could respond to this. So it goes back to that process and methodology to the bit as well. Can we define the problem? And what are some of the things we can bring to solve some of those issues? And I think that's part of the trick as well. Oh, I wouldn't get it. I was just going to sort of throw back kind of a yeah. flip side to this. So, so what happens when you have the shiny toy and you show it to clinicians and um, they either don't trust it or they, they fear that it's going to take their job or, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, some of the AI technology um, yeah. in reading um, radiography or endoscopy kind of scans. What, what do, you, do you think about that when you've got this really cool, I think it looks really cool, shiny toy and there's suspicion that comes back at you? Yeah, I think that. I think I'd love to come back to that one. Um, you know, that it, that is a real risk um, because often, and, and I don't think it's it's a fear that, you know, your job might get taken, but often it's a fear that is that bit of technology going to be able to do effectively what the clinician touches, the clinician does. So will it be able to do the soft thing that a patient, you know, that a patient might be telling you about? Uh, so when it comes to kind of like, you know, question sets or AI algorithms that are, you know, taking histories, for example, will it pick up the soft cues, you know, when a patient looks down at their, at their feet when answering a question, those kind of things always go through a clinician's mind. But I think it comes about around to that wraparound piece and that confidence. So when you present, or certainly when a, a technology is presented to you and it's kind of said, here is a solution which will do X, Y, and Z. Actually, I think Mike's approach where you actually let the clinicians think, ah, this is how I can utilize it. And having that time to try and process where it might fit into that patient journey in an MDT approach, I think that's really valuable because 
you know, if you, if you just have doctors in the room and not the nursing team or not the physio team or not other, other allied healthcare professionals, then you might not see it as the solution from your perspective. So I think, I think what it, what it really comes down to is the whole package. And I think allowing that time, allowing that bandwidth for the clinical teams to understand where the, you know, where the system might fit and also to build the confidence. And I think that's the trick here. So often it's around confidence in the systems that yes, it can do what it is proposing to do as opposed to just trusting that it will do what it says it's going to do. And I think that confidence piece comes very slowly and very cautiously because what we're, we're dealing with here is we're, we're effectively dealing with real life patients. So if I was to go back to the analogy about other systems, so, you know, when we look at, you know, financial systems, banking, shopping, et cetera, you know, the worst that will go wrong is that, you know, you might get delivered the wrong item or, you know, some of your money might go missing, which is actually probably quite a bad thing to be honest, but, but you get what I'm trying to say here, if you get something wrong, um, there's potentially a GMC or an NMC number on the line. And most importantly, there's a patient's health, uh, which could have been, um, adversely affected. So I think, I think it's around building the confidence in our clinical teams that these shiny tools can do what they say they would do on the tin. And I think that comes with the time, uh, and again, you're demonstrating it in small pilots and then building it up. I think you've answered that question thoroughly. Um, really great points made. Just before we move on to the next one, does anyone else have anything else to add to that? No. All right, we'll move on to Mike's then. Um, we've got, does the NHS culture and gov prohibit working with innovators and entrepreneurs? So Mike, let's start off with you. Yeah, I, it's, I've, I've had a lot of reflection on this over the last two or three years in, in how we've responded to a lot of the pressures we face. When I look at the first six months of COVID, when it was incredibly stressful, but also really empowering, where we, we were just going out and engaging with different people for different solutions, whether that be, um, in my case, uh, we, uh, you know, ended up working with university to print 12,000 masks you know, on 3D printers and actually um, took over a factory to make gowns, you know, because we worked together on the solution and we didn't get over bogged down in, is that the right thing to do? And we, But we put checks and balances in, unlike central government on the BBE, around, you know, had clinicians looking at the product to check it was great. But we did that quickly without having to go through lots of processes. Um, and I was very taken recently, though, when I went to an event, we're trying not to name drop, but the House of Lords with a couple of ministers and, and so forth, where they were talking and innovators talking about, well, I don't want to work with the NHS because process is too slow. Processes are too slow. One of the ministers said, don't base your model on working with the NHS. Go and work with the US because there's no point in working with the NHS because they can't innovate, which I thought was a really interesting message. I thought, well, what are we getting wrong? And they said, well, it's the governance and the culture. And I thought, but we've proved that we can work swiftly, but I'm seeing everybody revert now to, it's got to go through this committee, it's got to hit this compliance levels. And yes, it's all about safety, but if the outside world now are looking in and going, I'm not, it's just too much hard work. How are we going to get the best from innovators and technologists out there if they're afraid to come and work with us? Um, and that, that's the kind of, 
the debate I'm battling with, but Paul also was one of the reasons we're trying to work with Amazon and people by working with someone like that. Hopefully that will encourage other innovators to come and work with us. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Carla, you've got your hands up. Love to come see you next. I feel like like jumping up and down and saying, we're here, we're here, we're here. The AHSNs, the Academic Health Science Networks, um, we're commissioned by the Office for Life Science and NHS England, specifically around spread and adoption of innovation in the NHS. And um, I know you know, but not everybody knows that. And it's it's that thing about getting the word out. Um, You know, we've got 15 AHSNs across the country. We talk to innovators all the time. I talk to, I'd say, between three and five companies every week. And we're we're a free resource up up to a certain point, obviously. Um, we, We talk to the companies. We help explain the regulatory hoops that they need to jump through. You know, we can talk to them about what the MHRA is. We can talk to them about things like DTAC, you know, the digital technology assessment criteria we can explain to them how things um how commissioning works how the icbs work um people have this idea sometimes that there's like the nhs that buys their product for everyone and it's explaining that every system has their own purchasing and 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 their own commissioning requirements and yes it is complicated but the resources are there and the funding is there to pay for this kind of advice to go out um in London, we have the Digital Health London Accelerator program that takes the most promising uh, companies on every year and really introduces them into the system, and does that networking and and makes those connections. And so I think um, it's it's a matter of finding the right people to help you. And um, we're definitely out there. And there's a whole bunch of us that are really excited about talking to new companies and, and new innovators and hearing about these these new products that are coming up and and working really hard to get them into the system. So um, I'd, I, I, I guess I'd say I'd beg to differ. I don't think it is necessarily easier to get into America. You know, I don't, is FDA approval easier than you know MHRA uh, approval? I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree. But it was, it was a fascinating perception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and I, I think unfortunately there is this perception. I know um, when I was a commissioner previously, I worked as as a commissioner at a CCG, and I wasn't completely familiar with what the AHSN network did, and I didn't realize that I could go to them if I wanted to to get an app for something, you know, if I wanted to find out what the latest technology was. So I think it's about spreading the word that there is actually this network of, of um, organizations that are specifically here to bring the innovations into the NHS and and also into our local authorities and into social care. We work across we work across both um, basically anything in the health and care system. Fascinating. Uh, thank you, Carla. Uh, you've got your hands up waiting patiently. Yeah, I think I'm probably going to be sitting in the middle of those two views somewhere. Um, <laughs> So, so I think I think Mike raises such you know, and and Carla, I think brings such fantastic viewpoints to it, and and I think I probably it's probably fair to say that I've probably seen things from both end end of the scale. Um, so having supported some of um some you know digital health companies that are trying to implement it into the NHS, but then also, um, on the other side as a clinician trying to you know implement digital innovations, and I think I think there's a couple of things here. Um. The first is we have to remember that these companies, when they're in their infancy as startups, they're incredibly small, uh, and they they don't have perhaps the you know the the the, the resources that big companies like Amazon etc. will have. Yeah. But the NHS, what it asks of them is, and, and this is where the challenge comes, because these companies don't always understand, as Carla mentioned, that it's not one whole NHS that's going to buy the system. So every different system will have its own separate requirements, its own requirements for interoperability, its own requirements for working in slightly different ways and presenting data in slightly different ways. And I think it's a challenge for those companies to really try and do all of those things for every single 
customer within the NHS. And the challenge is that a lot of these companies are, are entering the NHS or, or want, would like to enter the NHS because they need to scale up. They often have investors who are asking the question saying, you know, where is the next opportunity? You know, how many, how much growth is happening? So I think there is a challenge there. And I can certainly understand Mike's point about why some companies would say, look, the NHS is just too complex, um, especially in those early phases. But I think that there's also something within the question about working with innovators. And the problem that we sometimes have is we have this this element of pilotitis. We'll, we'll try something, um, we'll invest really, really heavily into it, and then we'll decide for some reason that there's no more funding for it. Uh, even though it worked, actually, our focus is on something else. There's a new flavor of the month. And what happens is all that hard work, all of that learning that we've done, all of that benefit that we've we've found, this doesn't get pushed forward because the funding disappears. And that comes into my final point around procurement and working with, that term working with. And actually what we should be doing is we should be creating partnerships. And those partnerships with technology, again, having the patient right in the middle of that focus, having the clinical teams right at the center, those partnerships should be aimed at developing something going long-term with a strategy and starting off with a strategy to try and develop something new, something innovative. And I think certainly where I've seen things work well is where it's been more of a partnership approach um, with the technologies as opposed to more of a, here is a technology, let's try it out. It works, now it doesn't work, or there's no funding, we need to scrap it. So I can certainly see things from both sides of the uh, both sides of the coin. Um, I hope that's not too contentious because both of the hands went up then. Yeah, so, no, that's fine. So let's Carlo was first. That's over. <laughs> well, yeah, now now I I feel like I need to change what I was going to say because you I put my hand up when um, you started talking about interoperability and then you, you kept talking and I was like yeah yeah actually yeah yeah so I think um, I don't disagree at all with what you said. Um, I think interoperability to start with is is a really big problem. Um, the fact that um, every hospital uses a different um, you know, patient record system, every GP practice, not every GP practice, but lots of GP practices use different, you know, they're, they're different record systems. It's a huge problem that um, an innovator will say to me, oh, yes, we're interoperable with, and I'll name a particular product. And I'll ask, I'll say, well, yeah, but that's not the one that's the most used in London. How about this other one? And they say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll call them tomorrow. And then, you know, you have to tell them it takes years sometimes to become interoperable with some of these systems. So I think there's definitely um, a problem there that I have no solution for. I, I don't know how to sort that out, how to make everyone use the same EPR. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I know there's been attempts in the past, um, but the pilot thing that you said, yeah, this, <laughs> Gurnak's using the chat and just wrote decades. I, I have decades, I think might even be optimistic. <laughs> but um, I, I think the other thing you said about about pilots is another thing that's, um, <laughs> or centuries, he's, he's being very funny in the chat. <laughs> But um, I, I think also the thing you raised about pilots is really important. Um, pilots pop up, like you said, they run for a year and they disappear. Um, you know, maybe GP practices clubbing together and working on something across multiple practices, or if there's hospitals or trusts that cover um, regional areas, not just yet. Yeah, London, it's easy to talk about because we've got lots of hospitals close together. But, you know, if a couple hospitals could pair up to pilot something, you know, and then if somebody else sees that it's going on and it starts to spread, that's really the key, but it's also very, very tricky because in the meantime, you know, one hospital may be piloting a system and then a couple months later, the hospital next door purchases a different product that does the same thing and starts piloting their system. And then, you know, up the road, someone else purchases a third product. 
And so there's something to be said about trying to get those organizations to speak to each other at the beginning and agree maybe to try something together over over a larger patch. But I I don't know if there's a solution to that. I can see Mike has his hand up. Maybe he's got the solution. <laughs> now, well, I, I I suppose one of the things I was talking about is um, integrated care systems, trying to bring people together. Um, but it is a challenge. I, I have often talked to my my role about it's a combination of herding cats and whacking moles that you're always trying, you know, new new initiatives come up and then trying to bring everybody together. But there is a desire. And, and often if it comes from the bottom, all right, people can see the advantages of working together. Um, so in the West Midlands, for the first time ever, we're working together on a shared care record, a single remote care platform across the West Midlands, and we're all being asked to look at trusted research environments. The other important point, and I think we mentioned it about partnerships, I think it's really key. To be fair to NHS England colleagues, they're not always there, but the Digital Health Partnership Awards, where they were looking at partnerships, that was very much about how can you bring together an ecosystem of innovators, the commercial sector, your providers, your patients, into one and create a different model of how you can deliver change. And and that's what we've been doing around the d learning disabilities piece. We're working with a commercial partner in a different model, um, our, our health providers, a charity, and our patients and users. And I think that's what we've got to look at around that model. So I know I've been provocative with the question. <laughs> I genuinely think we can work with innovators, but we've just got to think through what the best way is, but also help them to navigate the the complexity of what is actually not a single NHS, even though we think about it, is we often say it's it's, it's a thousand organisations federated rather than one big amorphous mass. Wow, I think it was optimistic with six questions uh, that we you provided. Um, has anyone else got anything else to add on anything we've gone over today? Now it's been a great conversation, and just before we end there, uh, I'd like to thank all my guests today for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. The guests have been Gernak, Mike, and Carla. You've added fantastic value, and I'm sure everyone listening will agree. Um, if you're hiring for a new technical role or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop us a message too. I'm Rose Sullivan. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can give me an email at rose.sullivan at evolution-contract.co.uk. Thank you again to our guests. You've all been amazing, and I look forward to the next one.